Let us pray. Again, Almighty God, we come to You. We come to You because You are the One who has given us grace. You are the One who has sent Your Son into this world. You are the One who calls us to Yourself by giving us Your Spirit. And so we draw near to You, O Lord, and pray that You would pour that very Spirit upon us this day, that You would enliven our hearts and our minds, that You would open our ears and our eyes, that we might hear and see Your Word before us, and that You would cause it to be deep within our hearts, that our hearts might love the One who for our sake gave up His own life, but has been raised back to new life, that we too might have new life. So guide us to know Him and to love Him, that very one, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we pray. Amen. So I have a confession to make. I don't often read ahead in the lectionary. So, last week in my baptism, my sermon about the baptism of Jesus, I referenced John 1 a whole lot because I didn't realize that that was our gospel passage for this day, for this second Sunday of Epiphany. And so, I don't always read ahead, but through the providence of God, the things that I addressed last week about this passage I don't have to talk about today. Because sure enough, if I hadn't talked about John 1 last week, this sermon would be crammed with a whole lot more stuff this week because I would have to address all the stuff about baptism. All of that would have to be crammed into this sermon too because John talks about baptism a lot. He talks about that revelation of Jesus through that baptism, through the Spirit descending. All of that wraps together with that very wonderful statement of his here in the very first verse, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another funny thing about this passage, besides me having not read ahead in the lectionary, is that in our old traditional lectionary, in the lectionary that's found in the 1928 prayer book and also the 1662, this passage from John is not part of the one-year Eucharistic lectionary. So in, that, in those old prayer books, you had a one-year lectionary that you would just cycle through year after year as opposed to us using a three-year lectionary. But this passage didn't show up in any part of that lectionary. That may seem strange because why would they skip over one of the most important, important statements about Jesus, the Lamb of God? Why would they skip over this nugget of truth, this beautiful narrative about Jesus and about the first disciples beginning to follow him? And the reason is, is because we sing about it every week. In the Gloria, we sing about it. Lord Jesus Christ, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We sang it just a few minutes ago. We also sing it, or at least say it, in the Agnus Dei. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have mercy on me every week during communion now. And in the old prayer books, they would have done that too. They sang both of those. And so every week, week in and week out, this passage was being declared, this passage was being referenced because the importance was recognized. Throughout the whole church, this passage has been seen as a cornerstone passage that it has been worked into our weekly Eucharistic liturgy. It's been worked in that we every week say the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And that's foundational for us to understand. That is our faith. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it is because Jesus is that Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, all that we do can point to that one man, Jesus. We can point to who tr Jesus truly is before the world because He is the Lamb who has taken away the sin of the world. So that brings us to the first idea in this passage that I want to talk about is pointing to Christ. What does John the Baptist do? In the previous few verses, the Pharisees have come to John and they're asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that has been promised in the Old Testament? Are you Elijah? They're asking him all these questions and John just says, no, that's not me. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. His response is, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight the path of the Lord. His point is to point to someone else. Everyone is concerned about him being this great prophet, this great one, this one who has apparently received the Spirit because he is a great prophet. He is proclaiming the Word of God. He is calling the people to repentance, and the people are responding. And so the Spirit is working through this John the Baptist. But he doesn't call people to himself. He calls people away from himself. As he said, I'm the voice crying, prepare the way of the Lord. I'm not the voice crying, come to me, all who labor. Come to me and I will give you rest. No, I cry out, make straight the path of the Lord so that the Lord can come to you. Make straight the path because the Lord is coming. Chop down the mountains and pour them into the valley so that it is a flat pathway for the Lord to come through. That is John's reason for being. His entire reason for ministry is to point to the Messiah, to point toward the one that will be revealed. That is the whole reason for everything John is doing right now. He didn't go into ministry to get disciples for himself. He went into ministry to raise up disciples for the Messiah. Look at what he says throughout our passage. One, he points to Christ as the Lamb of God. And then he declares to the people who are there around him, this is the one that I said after me comes a man who ranks before me. I did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing, that he might be revealed. And I saw the Spirit descend like a dove, and it remained on him. And the Spirit had told me, the one who sent me said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, He is the one who will baptize with that very same Spirit. All of John's language here is pointing us to the Messiah. Yes, he says, I was sent to do this, I was sent to do that, I was the one who heard this voice that said, but all of it is for the purpose of pointing to Jesus, that he eventually will diminish, that John will diminish in order that the Messiah might increase. That is John's calling, is to point everyone toward Christ. Everyone that comes to him is pointed toward Christ, even to the point that he is losing disciples. In the next half of our pericope, we hear of two disciples going to follow Jesus. 
Because John, again, on the next day, sees Jesus and he says, the Lamb of God. And so Andrew and the unnamed disciple leave John and start following after Jesus. Because John points to Jesus. Because he knows who Jesus is. And so John doesn't care for himself. He doesn't care for his ministry to build it up. Because the entire point of his ministry was to lead to Christ. To be the foundation, the forerunner of Christ. To prepare the people for Christ and to point them ever toward him. That is John's calling. And that likewise is our calling that in our daily lives, in our works, in our relationships, in our vocations, we point people to Christ. We point people toward Christ by walking as Christ walked, by walking in Christ, by walking with Christ, by placing our faith in Him day in and day out, confessing our failures, confessing our sins, depending upon Christ to be at work in us to change us, forgiving those who have wronged us. But simultaneously, walking that path that God has placed us on, walking in obedience to His will, looking to His commandments, and striving toward a greater obedience to them, not out of our strength, but out of the Spirit's strength that has been given to us. And so in doing those things, we begin pointing people to Christ because people may eventually ask, what is wrong with you? Why are you so quick to admit your failures? Why are you so quick to confess that you messed up? Why are you so quick to help the new employees here? You say, because that is my calling. I have been sent by Christ to work here. I have been renewed and given forgiveness in a way that I never knew before. And so Jesus has told me to extend forgiveness to others, to confess my own faults, and to extend forgiveness to all those who sin against me. He lifted me up when I needed help, and therefore I will lift up others when they need help. It's because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John points to Christ, and in his pointing to Christ, he reveals to us how he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Because he saw the Spirit descend and remain on Christ. And so the second idea that I see in this passage today is the idea of remaining with Christ. And it begins with the Spirit. John says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And the one on whom you see the Spirit descend, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit remains with Jesus. The Spirit doesn't just come upon Jesus hang out for a while and then go elsewhere. Because Jesus is the Son of God, He already has a divine nature. He already has all the power of God Himself. So why does the Spirit come and remain with Him? It's important that the Spirit rest upon Him, that, it, that the Spirit remains, that He remains. Not it remains, but He remains. For the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit remains with Jesus and stays with Him in such a way that the Holy Spirit becomes the Spirit of Christ. Elsewhere, St. Paul will describe the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ that he then gives out to his people. The Holy Spirit remains with Christ in such a way that the Spirit becomes the possession of Jesus the man, of Jesus the God-man. And the Spirit being the possession of this God-man, Jesus, 
Jesus can then pour that very Spirit out upon all who need Him. All who need that Spirit can receive that Spirit through Jesus. For in a way, because the Spirit has remained, the Spirit belongs to Jesus to give out. For the Spirit descended and remained in order to be poured out through Jesus. And John says, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So he knows that this Jesus is the Messiah because the Spirit has descended and remained with Jesus. The Spirit has united himself to Jesus, the man, to mark him as the Messiah, to mark him as the anointed one, to mark him as the true king of all of creation. That is the calling that Jesus has upon him. Jesus came into this world to be revealed as the Messiah, to be the true king of the world, and so the Spirit remains with him. We heard about that in Isaiah 42 last week, that the Spirit will remain upon God's chosen one. The one my soul delights in, I have put my Spirit upon him. And likewise, in Isaiah 11, it speaks of the Spirit being given to the servant, being given to the root of Jesse, being given in order to lift him up, that he can accomplish the calling that is given to him. And because the Spirit remains with Jesus, the Spirit abides with Jesus. It's the same word in Greek. When we get over to John 15 and Jesus speaks of abide in me and I will abide in you, it's the same underlying word. Remain with me and I will remain with you. The Spirit remains with Jesus in order that we would then remain with Jesus. The Spirit remains upon Jesus so that He can be poured out and as He is poured upon us, He remains with us and draws us into remaining with Jesus. That we would rest and stay in Christ. And that is what happens in verses 35 through 42. When John says, the Lamb of God, His disciples leave Him. And they go and speak with Jesus. And they ask Him where He's staying. And Jesus says, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where He was staying and they stayed with Him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. And one of those disciples was Andrew. And he went and found his brother and said, we found the Messiah. These disciples of John, Andrew and the unnamed disciple, some think that was the gospel writer John himself because he likes to hide. He never names himself as one of the disciples. He always refers to himself as later on in the gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. And here this Disciple remains unnamed, the second disciple. And so some think that's John hiding himself in the text, for he was there. He witnessed Andrew following Jesus, and he went and followed Jesus too. But nonetheless, they go, and they follow Jesus, and they remain with him. They stay with him for the rest of that day, for it was late in the day, about the tenth hour, about four o'clock in the afternoon. And so they stayed wherever it was that Jesus was staying, and they were caught up by him. They were caught up in such a way that Andrew goes and finds his brother and says, we found the Messiah, we found the Christ, we found the anointed one, the one who will save all of Israel. You have to come and meet him. That is the impression that Jesus left on Andrew. That Andrew went and found his own brother and said, come and meet the Messiah. And so they remained with Christ. They remained near Christ. And what happens when Peter comes? It's a beautiful story. Jesus looks at him. John emphasizes that. Jesus looked at him. It rarely occurs stated like that. Jesus looks. When Jesus looks upon someone, 
He is bearing down upon them. He is making a point to them. He is taking them to himself. And Jesus looked at Simon and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus considers who Peter is and renames him. He gives him a new name that tells us who he is to become. He is the rock, the stable one, the one who is unshakable. It's a very ironic name as we consider the rest of Peter's life, isn't it? That Jesus names him the rock, the stable one, and Peter is the one who so quickly <coughs> blunders about. He is the one who jumps to the conclusions that often can be wrong. He is the one who three times denies Christ. He is the one who in Antioch sided with the Judaizers and began separating from the Gentiles because those circumcised believers were offended by the Gentiles' uncircumcision, though those Gentiles believed in Christ just as much as the Jews. And St. Paul came in and confronted him before the crowd and said, You are wrong, Peter. You were here already celebrating, and then when these Judaizers came up, you started siding with them because you were fearful of them. The rock is sometimes shaky. But nonetheless, he remains firm and stable in his commitment to Christ. He returns back to Christ after that fall, after denying him three times. He is restored three times by Christ. After his confrontation with Paul, he continues on that path of redemption, the path toward redemption, that path of making known Jesus. Despite his foibles, Jesus names him Peter. And Peter ultimately does live up to that, dying, being martyred for the sake of Christ. Peter becomes a foundation upon which many others will stand. We hear about him throughout the Gospels and we hear of him and about him through his two letters. He becomes a foundation that we depend upon for he writes Holy Scripture for us. He becomes a rock that we can stand upon. He holds strong despite the weathering, despite the storms that come. And so Jesus knew something of God's plan by renaming Peter, by drawing Peter in to remain with him. And well, we should expect that, that he would know something more about Peter than even Peter himself knew. And so Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and John and James eventually, Philip and Nathaniel and all the rest to remain with him. Because the Spirit who remained with Christ is the very one who will cause us to remain with Christ. And so as Jesus calls these disciples to himself, and they begin following him, and he invites them to stay with him. They remain, and they leave John. They leave the pointer to be with the one who is pointed to. And why does John point at Jesus so deeply, so assuredly? Well, that takes us right back to the very beginning of our passage, where John said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It's wonderful to get to hear John proclaim a positive message. So often it's all, repent, 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 you brood of vipers. The other gospels, he's always calling people out for their sins. He's confronting them. He asked them, why are you coming to me? Who told you to flee the wrath to come? Who warned you? 
He comes across as so angry sometimes. But here John, St. John reveals to us the other side of him, the one who is joyful, who adores his cousin because he discovers that his cousin is the Messiah. And so he gets to proclaim this beautiful word, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. What is the Lamb? This one who is taking away the sin of the world. The Lamb is the one who is the sacrifice. The Lamb ultimately represents all of Israel's sacrificial system. The morning and evening sacrifices that went on day after day after day after day. It represents all the peace offerings offered to God, all the joy offerings. It represents the once a year atonement offering, the sacrifice of atonement. And it always draws us back to that passage we heard from Exodus this morning. The establishment of the Passover, that lamb who was substituted for the firstborn of Israel, that lamb who gave up its life in order that the firstborn of Israel might keep their life. As God came in judgment against Egypt, he marked his people and separated them with a lamb, with the blood of the lamb, in order that they would be passed over, in order that they would not be judged in the condemnation coming upon Egypt. And so the lamb is the one who is slain on behalf of the people. But even more so, even back all the way to Exodus or to Genesis 22, as we hear about Abraham taking Isaac to be sacrificed. For God said, bring me your son and sacrifice him. As they're going along, as they're traveling, Isaac rightly points out, it's like we've got the fire, we've got the knife, we've got the wood. But where is the lamb, Father? Where is the lamb for sacrifice? And Abraham very presciently says, the Lord, Yahweh, will provide the lamb for sacrifice. Even then, knowing what he was called to do, Abraham trusts that God will give him his son. He trusts that God will act in some way that while God is calling for that beloved son to be sacrificed, God will nonetheless prepare another way. The book of Hebrews even goes so far as to tell us that Abraham could even believe in the resurrection because he knew that this was the true son of promise. And if God wanted him as a sacrifice, then God must raise him back to life in order to fulfill his promises. And so he trusts God to provide the true lamb. And thus the lamb is the one who is put in the place of the people, who substitutes himself, who is used as a substitute for the sins of the people. So Jesus is that lamb of God. That lamb who stands in our place, who takes on our death, who receives our wrath, who receives our sin, the great heap of guilt and sin placed upon him upon that cross. And that brings us to that second part of the statement, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes away. Something I never thought about is that that is in the present tense. Which means that it's not just a one-time taking away of sin. That we don't say, behold the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. No, we say the Lamb of God who takes away, who is taking away, who is continually receiving us back to himself and extending his forgiveness. The one upon whom all sin was placed. The one upon whom all the guilt of the world 
of humanity itself. All the sin of humanity was placed upon him at the cross. He took it upon himself then, and he continually takes it to himself by extending his forgiveness to us. He takes our sins away by forgiving us day in and day out. He took everything nearly 2,000 years ago upon himself. All of his, all the sin throughout all of past history, present history, and future history, you might say, placed upon him at the cross. And it all died with him. But then we live our day-to-day -day lives struggling against sin, fighting against sin, finding ourselves in sin, wrestling against that wicked sin nature within. And the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world takes that sin from us too. He reminds us that it has been dealt with. He reminds us that it is forgiven. And so by continually extending His forgiveness, He continually takes our sin, telling us that it's not a one-time moment, a one-time removal of certain sins at a particular moment in the past, leaving us to deal with our current sins. No, it's all sin itself. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The guilt and the sin of a broken mass of humanity bent out of shape because of sin nature. That guilt is heaped upon Christ. That sin is heaped upon Christ for our sake. In order that we can then live in Christ, that we might then daily confess our sins, that we might moment by moment confess our need of Christ's forgiveness. To continually pray that Jesus' prayer that the Orthodox have given us, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A short prayer that in one, rush, one Orthodox story, a man is told to pray day in and day out, continually over and over in order that he might learn to pray without ceasing, that that is the foundational prayer, have mercy on me, a sinner. To acknowledge our sins and in asking for mercy to ask for forgiveness. To have that work of the cross brought into the present and applied to you right now, applied to me right now because he took the sin of the world upon himself and he took it away and he takes it away over and over ascending into heaven and presenting himself to the father as the once for all sacrifice that the father then extends forgiveness over and over and over to us that though we continually sin Christ's atonement is greater than all of our sin combined we never empty the cup of God's graciousness we never empty the cup of God's forgiveness. We may return over and over and over and over again and confess our sin, and God the Father will never say enough. Enough with your confessions. I'm done. God never says that. He welcomes us over and over to His throne of grace for the sake of the Lamb of God who continually takes away our sin. The Father welcomes us because Jesus has dealt with that sin then and now. And we are restored for the sake of Jesus' all-sufficient sacrifice. And that is what John points to. He points to the Messiah that will take away the sin of the world, who continually takes it away that we might be restored and that we might then go forth in joy, go forth in praise of this one 
and go forth pointing others not at ourselves, but continually pointing others toward Christ. As we see others struggling, as we see others wrestling in their sin, we can come and help them and encourage them and point them to Christ. That we can point out the forgiveness that exists in Christ and that with forgiveness can come freedom from sin. With forgiveness comes restoration from sin. With forgiveness comes reconciliation to the Father and to the Son. So the Lamb of God takes away our sin day in and day out. And He will send us forth to make Him known. He sends us forth to make Him known in our actions, in our deeds, in our words, in our thoughts. And we can rejoice for when we stumble and sin and fail in that task, we can confess it and be restored and know that that sin too has been dealt with by this Lamb of God. And so remember and behold to you the Lamb of God who takes away, who is taking away the sin of the world which includes your sin and it includes my sin. And so know that Jesus is the Lamb of God for you. The Lamb of God who has taken all of our sin upon Himself and takes it away even now that we would always know forgiveness and restoration and know the peace that is in Him, that we would remain with Him as the Spirit has remained upon Him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.